بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Taala we seek blessings upon the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم so welcome back to another exciting episode of Surah Ali Imran looks like our class is getting smaller and smaller unless people are going to be trickling in hmm, small class yet in any case we will have a deep discussion so uh, yesterday Part of the discussion was focused on some academic concepts. And a point I want you to consider is how easy it is to fall into the academic dis- uh, discussion. And as a result, lose sight of the big picture. And so, so we'll see that uh, again, potentially uh, a little bit today. Uh, and so, you know, when, when we're speaking about this embodied transformative approach to the text, What that also means is that a lot of the academic issues are actually secondary. But even as I'm saying that, I'm saying that in academic language, it's easier to to illustrate as as we go through. So now let's jump into the next ayah. Okay, so once again, Nod, let me know. You can see the the Quran on the screen. A couple of semi-random translations here. So yesterday we did Nazala Alek al Kitab Bil Haq Musadipalima Baina Yudehi wa Anzala Torah wal Injil. Now Min Kablu. So these revelations came earlier, Hudalin Nas, guidance for the people, wa anzala al-Furqan. Uh subtle point, any experts in Arabic, uh, if you want to chime in, what is the difference between Nazala and Anzala? Anybody want to share a guess? Is one piecewise and the other all at once? Yeah, nazala is essentially that it's going step by step by step by step. Anzala is boom. So the Torah was revealed in one big unit to Prophet Musa, peace be upon him. And from this ayah, we would infer that the Injil whatever was the Injil, was revealed in one big unit to the to Prophet Isa alayhi salam. Nazala, same root word as Anzala, Nazala is that the book is coming down <clears throat> step by step. So these are some of the fun, uh, uh, very, very subtle points in the text. Yeah, awesome. Um, do we have any indication as to like any reasoning behind that? So, so a common understanding is, and this is this is going to sound almost cliche coming from me, is that the approach of the Quran was a transformation of the community, whereas the approach of the Torah was the liberation of a community. So, the community already has its personality, its outlook, and then they're being freed. Whereas that is not uh, the issue here with the generation of the prophet, peace be upon him. It's almost as though they're starting from zero and they're being transformed into the greatest of generations. And so that's a step-by-step process. And then that raises questions on things like abrogation and such, that here's an ayah that is in practice now, then it gets removed. Or here's an ayah that's practiced now, still gets recited, but is not practiced anymore. And so, so those are some theories. Yeah, uh, Tosif. That's interesting because I always assumed the Torah was revealed over oh. a period of time as well oh, yeah. with Musa al-Islam. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case uh, according to our tradition. That the- and according to the majority opinion and the interpretation of passages like this specific one, exactly, he received it all in one piece. Uh, Dr. Kazi. Uh, what would you say to this thesis that uh, uh, since Quran, since Islam is the summation and the final shape of things, uh, all the previous things were basically blocks, uh, building blocks that is now being refined and put together in the Quran. Therefore, a block could be sent down as as a block in total, whereas uh, in terms of is, uh, Quran and Islam, it has to be now set upon each uh, piece by piece to set up, uh, to construct a uh, final edifice? I mean, I think it's it's a nice academic idea. Uh, in practice, I don't know uh, if it makes much of a difference. And a way to think about this is, is that number one, 
what was what do we understand was the practice of the prophet peace be upon him when he was in Medina was that it seems as though the Torah, the law of the Torah was the default until he, number one, received an ayah on the same issue, overriding it or confirming it. And then number two, until the Quran itself gets completed, you know, this day we have completed your deen. And then at that point, the Torah is completely uh, expired. So that fits your, uh, your argument, at least in the context of the Torah. But the reason why I'm suggesting it's, it's partially an academic argument is because it was relevant for that population, because we had a, a significant population of Jews in Medina. Uh, there is another. Tie... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was trying to tie it to your basic thrust in terms of relationships. Yeah. And uh, uh, when the, when you the, the emphasis on relationships with Islam, with Islam is so uh, stands in such a stark contrast as to with the previous. Uh, the previous traditions, so to speak. And uh, most of the other previous traditions, you basically see one overriding societal flaw or, or a community flaw that they can't get rid of and are, and are destroyed. No such thing in Islam, though. Uh, okay, well, what would be an example in a different community? Uh, for example, uh, Shoaib alayhi salam. He gets presented to a community who whose overriding flaw is that uh, they, they're shorting in the measure. They, they don't give the full measure. Uh, Lut alayhi salam in terms of, uh, you know, homosexuality and, uh, uh, and promiscuity, deviance, uh, sexual deviance, uh, or in terms of... Uh, uh, okay, so, uh, so these points would, uh, would not be... Uh, uh, however we interpret them, these, these would not be the, the flaws, so to speak, in, in Islam, that would be in that particular population. Meaning uh, uh, the, compar the comparison would not be to Islam, the comparison would be to the Quraysh. Uh -huh. See what I'm saying? And there are multiple critiques of the Quraysh, like the bearing of daughters, like like uh, the unfair uh, um, or, you know, um, the unfair uh, balances in terms of how they would charge and, and such. Uh, do you see what I'm saying? It's, uh, I don't think the, I think the analogy only works if we're focusing on the population to the population. Okay. As opposed to the, the belief system. Um, and, and obviously, you know, for, for many who are listening, when we're hearing terms like uh, homosexuality and all that stuff, we're probably, there's also curiosity to get to those discussions, but I'm going to, hold off of those. But um, uh, uh, there is also related to your point, there's also a theory that every time each of these books is revealed, it's also propelling a certain amount of the population forward in the process of social evolution with the completion, yeah, the completion being the, the Quran, yeah. So yeah, but again, I think those are, those are uh, fun and intriguing academic ideas to explore that I enjoy exploring myself. And so, so then uh, going further back into, into the text, uh, okay, well, Anzal al-Furqan, that's why I was speaking about Nazila versus Anzila. One point that we are going to explore in a moment is the relationship between this idea of Kitab and Furqan. And we're gonna add another term in there, Hikmah, give us some core uh, 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 terminology for today. And then the second half, kafiru, as for those who have rejected, they have rejected the ayahs of Allah, so for them is a severe torment, Aziz, and so Allah is, is powerful and mighty, and then he is also uh, very much the possessor, the possessor of the ability to to Okay, so so now getting into some of this terminology. You will often find a couple of terms being brought up over and over again. One is kitab, one is furqan, and one is hikmah. So you'll see the kitab and the furqan, the kitab and the hikmah. And 
there are so many newer, numerous theories about what these terms mean in relationship with each other that I don't even know if we can identify a majority opinion. So for example, there is a theory that when you have kitab and hikmah together, it's referring to the Quran and the Sunnah. But first, let's just talk about the, the etymological, uh, like just the linguistic meanings of these words. So kitab, you know, we commonly translate it as book and I suggested I prefer prescription. Or we can just say straight up writing. Although we know that the Quran was not in written form in total as one unit at the time of the prophet, may peace be upon him. So anybody, what is Furqan? Criterion, the yeah, differentiator. Okay, so a, yeah, I was gonna say, because everyone likes to say criterion, but to put it in, in simple language. So so it's that which splits, then usually understood the context right from wrong. And then Hikmah is easy in terms of its, its common usage. This is wisdom. One way I'd like you to consider the relationship between these terms and the actual books is that this becomes a consequence of internalizing the books. So whether we are speaking of the Quran, whether we're speaking of the Torah or the Injil, the further I embody the Quran, the more I begin to internalize that it is a prescriptive text. And what I mean by this is, is that it is compelling me to act in a particular way. And so the point that you keep hearing from me is that, okay, if you keep taking courses and such and you're the same person at the end of the course, then the question is, is the course anything but a good meal? And a good meal is not necessarily a problem. It can still be nutritious. But uh, in its most simplest sense, what should be the, con the, the consequence of gaining sacred knowledge is that it should compel you to get more closer to Allah Ta'ala, especially by way of action. And so here I'm speaking of the kitab internalized. That the book is the book that you that you recite. The kitab becomes once you have begun to internalize it. Likewise for the Quran, that a consequence <clears throat> of internalizing the Quran is that you get better at seeing right from wrong. And I'll even make this point. This is this this might be a little bit pro pro provocative. Uh, the students that I've had over the years that start from particular types of understanding of the Quran uh, will have their own strengths and weaknesses in understanding the other subjects. And the students that I've had over the years that start from Quran, as opposed to Hadith, as opposed to law, as opposed to theology, etc., 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 as opposed to to uh, orthodox or non-orthodox ways of Sufis and such. The students that start with Quran seem to have the best adaptability in understanding all the other sciences. The students who start from these other subjects often struggle uh, uh, to the point that they don't even realize how much they're struggling. You're referring to sciences of religion, correct? Um, uh, uh, it would make your question longer because I'm not sure which part of my point you're referring to. Oh, when you said that in terms of difficulty in understanding other Oh, no, sciences. no, no. Okay, so, so uh, it uh, includes uh, difficulty in understanding other sciences, but as well as living the practice. That what I'm saying is that those that are coming from, from things other than the Quran and to also, uh, their, the strength is also their biggest weakness. And so a way to think about this is, so uh, uh, forget uh, 
uh, uh, Islam for a moment. Uh, imagine the strengths and weaknesses of different majors that you get in college and then trying to apply that to other fields versus applying that to, to life itself. Yeah. Uh, of all the different majors a person could have, which would you suggest would be uh, best suited to help someone in terms of just living their lives? Any ideas? Would it be physics? Would it be philosophy? Would it be literature? Awesome, what do you think? Probably humanities. Okay, but that's not a major, that's a, that's a whole division. Give me a major. Any thoughts? Would it be psychology? Yeah, literature. literature. Okay, I don't. I'm not. I'm not suggesting an answer for this. I'm more curious to what you all have to say. Not physics. Yeah. Uh, why not physics, Dosipo? You shook your head. Why not physics, or why not math? Business. No, those things could. I, I was just. I'm an English major, so I just. Uh, mean okay, so. Okay, fair enough. So, so uh, the point is, I think we all understand that uh, the major that I have, if I try to embody it uh, in terms of how I live my life, uh, it may be of use, maybe not of use, but it may be crippling or it may be liberating. So for example, something that is close, what's built into what's awesome and, and Tosif's point, something that's closer to, to human nature is probably gonna be better. And so what I'm saying is that in terms of living life, uh, and in terms of understanding the dean itself, those students that are coming from it are on foundation tend to tend to do the best. Now, why could the answer should be partially uh, obvious? Because all the other sciences are sort of uh, slivers of the Quran. And so what I'm effectively saying related to the very first discussion, the very first lecture, is the more grounded you are in the Quran, the stronger you're going to be in all the different fields. The more you're grounded in a particular field that does not apply necessarily for any of the other fields. And that's just been my, my anecdotal experience. So what I'm saying then is that the, the more you're grounded in the Quran, the more you will have an innate sense of right and wrong. And the way to think about this is that uh, how often uh, will you come across people who are students of jurisprudence working towards justice? Very rarely. Yeah, because everything gets answered through jurisprudence, which is a point that, that I made before. And so how often will you get uh, students who are involved in theology to be able to appreciate uh, the beauty of a tree in front of them. It's a different field. Okay, and so, and then, uh, 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 you know, let me catch up on the, on the chat box. And so then likewise, we're saying another consequence of the Quran is this innate wisdom, an innate understanding of how life operates, of what priorities are. So you will find over and over again that Allah revealed the Quran and the Hikmah, the Kitab and the Hikmah, the Torah and the Furqan, so forth and so forth. And I'm suggesting that there's many, many theories of how these all relate together. This is, a, this is something that I'm positing to you for your, your consideration. Uh, Asim. Um, does the combination of which of these terms are used in a specific ayah uh, demonstrate what the subsequent section is offering? So uh, I would say that uh, we can definitely derive some meaning when you see two terms together. So for example, what terms do we see here together, kitab and furqan, in the context of, of, of everything? Does it mean that that's telling us more about the section? Maybe, maybe not, but I would, it's very common just in terms of interpretation of the Quran that anytime you see two terms together to see if you can create a link, to see 
you know, what the link is. Sometimes the, the two are opposites of each other and they're juxtaposed like kufr and shukr, right? But it is very, very common to use that approach to, to derive uh, meaning, yeah. Uh, so when we're um, speaking of the Quran here um, and the how easy it is to understand other measures, are we speaking connection to the Quran, memorization or tafsir or a combination of the So three? I would speak of tadabur primarily. So tadabur meaning deep reflection. That's an important question. It would include all those things, but if I'm simply phonetically measure, uh, memorizing the Quran, that's not going to help me much in any of the fields. Right? It's a good starting point. Um, and then, of course, recitation wouldn't really apply to anything beyond beyond the Quran itself. Uh, so I have the same question as Stephanie in the chat box. So even if there's reflection, deep reflection of the Quran, what, where does the context of Sira come in of the Prophet's biography? Okay, very good. So now let's talk about the natural question. Well, how does the Prophet fit into all this? So, so first redrawing this, this uh, drawing that I made uh, the other day, I think it was yesterday. You all still see the whiteboard, yes? So once again, we have Allah, and then reveals to the Prophet, peace be upon him. We have the Quran, we have the Sunnah, we have the Hadith, and so this is a minor change versus yesterday's drawing. Yesterday I was speaking in the context of official revelations. Now what we're looking at is how to, or in fact, you know what, let me keep it simple. Um, how do we define this yesterday? We was wahi matlu and wahi ghayr matlu. So, so what we do yesterday was that you have recited revelation and then non-recited. And so that's the Quran. And then non-recited is the sunnah as well as what we find in the Hadith literature. So that part, uh, let me know if anyone has any questions about this diagram. This is just literally basic. This is almost like the first lesson in Quranic sciences right here. Okay. So now let's shift it. Here we have we, and then we have the prophet, peace be upon him. How do we engage with the prophet, peace be upon him? One is with the Quran, although we often do not imagine it that way. The point I'd like you to consider is that you cannot separate the Quran from the Prophet, peace be upon him. On a bookshelf, yeah, there are two different books. You have the Quran and you have all these other books, Sunnah, Sira, etc., etc. But in terms of if we were companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, 100% of whatever we're getting about Islam is coming through this one man, right? Or it's coming from other people who are getting it from him, right? It is not coming from any other source. What do you think? Make sense? Agree, disagree, anybody want to modify? All right, so... Then what else do we have? We have the sunnah. What is the effective difference when we're imagining the prophet, when we're imagining standing in front of the prophet, peace be upon him, or living with him? What is the difference between the Quran and the sunnah? Anybody want to try to explain the difference? Uh, yeah, the, the Quran is the the you know list of prescriptions and the, the stuff we just covered. Quran? And uh, the Sunnah is the Quran applied into practice. Okay, almost there, almost there. I Did would just yeah, go for it, Hazel. I would say the Sunnah is seeing the Quran in action. Okay, so uh, to make it even simpler, the Quran is what is being recited, and it's being recognized specifically as Quran. 
And so the Quran is what's coming out of the mouth of the Prophet, peace be upon him. The Sunnah may be the Quran in action, but the Sunnah is fundamentally action. So does the difference make sense? Which then means if we're really going to get technical, the recitation of the Quran is also Sunnah too. If we're saying Sunnah is the action. So, so the Quran is whatever the Prophet is reciting and we're recognizing that it's being recited as Quran. Sometimes we may have to ask. So for example, if the prophet is giving instructions, we're checking, is this revelation? So an easy example of that is just before the battle of Badr, as the, the Muslims are setting up the camp, the prophet says, let's set it up over here. And then the companions ask, is this revelation that you're acting on? Oh, then we see this going over. Now, naturally, the sound of the Quran is fundamentally different than the sound of common conversation, even considering that the Prophet, peace be upon him, is saying of himself he is the best of Arabic speakers. Still, the Quran sounds different. But what I'm saying is that if you're standing in front of him, the Quran is what is being recited. If you're standing in front of him, the Sunnah will be his actions. And then we would categorize between those repeated actions and then non-repeated. Or we may categorize them, and I'll just make this in a different color just to show that's a slightly different list. Might be prescribed for us to follow or not prescribed. We might still follow them, then we use the term ittiba, right, to follow. Then we get the question of what is the hadith? Yeah, how does the hadith fit into this? And then how does the uh, the uh, the sita fit into this? So around a couple screens here. Uh, yeah, Austin, while I'm figuring this out. Um, can you give us examples of uh, actions that were not prescribed for us to follow? Yeah. Uh, literally almost everything that you can think of about the prophet, peace be upon him, like in clothing and such. You know, so a simple example that, that you know, that I was giving class is one day the prophet, peace be upon him, comes to class dressed, uh, wearing a ring. And just because he is, next day all the companions start wearing a ring too. Next day he takes it off, the day after that all the companions take it off. But there's no indication that he's telling anyone to wear the, a ring. You know, or his type of clothing, um, you know, think of something akin to an Urdu, what we call a lungi. And he would often have a lungi with that's white with red stripes. Yeah, things like that. So how does that fit into, uh, well, first, I guess the question is, is this true across all sects of Islam, do, do, does everyone believe that there are non-prescriptive actions for that the prophet took? Uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, I think you can't not believe that. Okay, so how does that fit in with uh, like the various um, sects of Islam where people pray without folding their arms? Because uh, but that's supposed that's to be a one-time thing, right? Yeah, so there, because it's within an act of worship, it's already, he's saying, pray as you see me pray, right? And so then the difference of opinion becomes, all right, if in his last prayer or prayers, he, he has his hands down, is that an update, right? Or is that an exception? And so one school says, no, that's an update. So that's how we have to pray. Another school says, no, that's an exception because we see his companions are still praying with their arms folded. And, and so that that's still within the context of something that is prescribed. Yeah. So then, and yeah, Hazel would eating his favorite foods fall into the same category. Yeah, he's not telling us, uh, can anyone tell us what are some of his favorite foods? This might Watermelon, be dates. Mm -hmm. 
Shoulder of Shoulders. Was okra one of them, or is that just something my mom told me to get me to eat vegetables? Okras were indigenous to Mike over Medina. Well, Malama is saying okra too, so maybe it was. All right. That's why I like okra so much. Okay. Because the prophet liked it. So, okay. So, so, yeah, so I don't know of any narrations where he is telling us to enjoy such and such foods as the best foods. He will often speak of the benefits of foods, right? Like dates and like black seeds, so forth and so on. I don't know about black seed honey, but black seed, yes, and honey, yes. Unless, I don't know, Jewel, if you, if you mix it as one thing or, or two things, because on Amazon, you can buy black seed honey. Okay, so, so then... How do we fit Hadith and Sita here? Yeah, separate, if you're very good. So Hadith is going to be what? It's going to be, well, first, what is, uh, what is the Hadith itself? Anyone? Define what is the Hadith literature? Yeah, go for it, awesome. Uh, Non-revelatory words and actions of the prophet as described by his companion. So the key word is described, meaning narrations. That's the fundamental word here. Of anything that the prophet said, did, or witnessed seeming to give approval. So, so the hadith are reports. Now, then what is the sirah? The Sita would technically be a subset of Hadith in the sense that it's reports. And so we said anything the Prophet said, did, witnessed, seeming to give approval. And I hope you all understand this third point. If he didn't approve, he would have said it. So he's present for something, does not criticize it. So seems to approve. Sita would be reports focused on what? Biography. So this is now how we are engaging with the prophet, peace be upon him. The first three would apply to the generation of the Sahaba. Right? Because you're, you have the potential to be there right in front of him, listening to him recite, or standing behind him in prayer. Uh, you're watching what he does, perhaps mimicking him, depending upon your devotion, right to the smallest detail, right? We have all these narrations of even when the prophet is doing wudu, there'd be companions that try to catch his water and do wudu with the water that, that is left off, so forth and so on. And then the hadith reports would be the people who are not present. Okay, okay, what'd you hear? What'd he do? Right? Sita is not as much, if at all, in the conversation at the time of the Sahaba. Except as individual moments. So it's compiling and ordering. If we look at Sita as a collection of moments, then yeah, then it's just part of the, part of the hadith. So Shema'il, great question. So Shema'il, in fact, we should almost, it's, uh, thank you for reminding me of this. Uh, we should literally give it its own category. So Hadith are here and Hadith are here as well. So Shema'il, uh, so Olfa, tell us what is Shema'il. Descriptions of what the Prophet wore, how he conducted himself with people, what he owned. Yeah. So personal attributes. And this, like Sira, would be something that is sort of coming later. 
because it's all present in the time of the Sahaba. Y'all see what I'm saying? That they're all looking right in front of him, how is he dressed? And so some are dressing like him or modifying their dress according to, to be closer like him. Like I gave the example of the ring or what color turban did he wear? Anyone? Did he wear a turban? Green that, and different colors? So different colors, most commonly black or seems to be most commonly. And then, and then very often, what was the color of his clothing in general? Most often it was very white, right? But uh, did he ever wear something resembling a topi, you know, a hunt? Because you're the topi master of, of uh, your, your, your time. I'm gonna leave that up to you to, to determine. No, it's actually, a, it's a whole category in the Shema literature. What was his, his, uh, his goofy, his topi like? So the answer to the question is yes, he did. This, this is a running joke between Ahant and I because uh, shortly after he became Muslim, he, he dressed way more Muslim than, than I did according to traditional methods. Like, look at what he looks like right now compared to me, mashallah, mashallah. In any case, so what do we think here? That our engagement with the Prophet, peace be upon him, is our fundamental engagement with Islam. So then going back to the question of, of uh, uh, Stephanie's point, the more you are embodying the prophet, peace be upon him, completely, the more you are doing the Quran as Hazel described in terms of action. Meaning the more you are living as the prophet, peace be upon him, the more you are embodying the whole thing. But that does not mean you will have ease in terms of the Islamic sciences. Because Islamic sciences are, are primarily academic with some amount of action. So if you had to choose between embodying the Quran and a thorough embodiment of the Sunnah, which do we pick? What do you think? If it's possible for the two to be two different things. Well, since the Prophet's the walking Quran, can we just say the Quran then? Yeah, or I would say it's the Sunnah because that's the Prophet is the walking Quran. See what I'm saying? That the Quran we built in. And this is essentially the fundamental difference between Sufi and Salafi. Of all the different differences, so in terms of the Orthodox Sufis and the Salafis, the Sufis are trying to get close to the Prophet, peace be upon him. And the Salafis are trying to get close to the Hadith. And these are two different things, using the same words. So would you say then that Salafis don't focus on the Shama'il? Uh, so if we're speaking of textbook Salafis, what is it, what is textbook Salafis essentially? So uh, they're essentially Ahl al-Hadith, right? In terms of, of their approach. And what makes Salafis Salafis is that their focus is on negation seeking authenticity, right? As a reformative uh, movement, then uh, what are we saying? That the Salafis are saying, like the Protestants 500 years ago in Christianity, that we have all of this excess. Some of it is Islam, some of it is not. And so we need to get rid of those things that are not Islam. And how do we determine what we can get rid of? Those things that we cannot authenticate. Which usually means Sira and Shema'il are gonna get knocked out. Because the end result very often in terms of the, the, the Salafi approach is Bukhari and Muslim. And so I'm talking about textbook Salafis. Now, you know, 40 years into the contemporary Salafi movement, then you have a whole wide variety and such. And they start becoming more and more like everyone else. But essentially, what am I saying? Their focus is on text. Whereas for the Orthodox Sufis, notice I keep saying Orthodox Sufis. It's the living experience. So, both of these, I'm listing their strengths, but then I'm also listing their weaknesses too. 
that the strength of the Orthodox Sufis is that you're getting yourself closer and closer to the Prophet, peace be upon him. The weakness is that, you know, the things that we often hear about, that you often turn to other pathways to get closer to the Prophet, peace be upon him, which might mean you're going to start elevating people who can get you there and then you start revering people above their status. The strength of the Salafi approach is the textual authenticity. The weakness is that it negates a lot of the Rahmah of Allah. Okay. Hey, awesome. Good to have you in the class. Uh, Musab, why is a lot, there a lot of shrine worship in some forms of Sufism and saint worship? So the saint worship is a thing that I just literally talked about, that it's very, this approach is very easy to elevate people uh, above of their status. Uh, the shrine worship would be the extreme version of that. But a lot of times in, so the problem is that the term Sufi is also very general. That's why I keep saying uh, 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 the Orthodox Sufis. But what is part of the essence of the Sufi approach, whether we're speaking of the Orthodox or the other types of Sufis, is that everything is all about relationships. That you're seeking a relationship, you know, a very active relationship with the Prophet, peace be upon him, and act almost to the way that it's spoken of as though he is living among us an active relationship with the teacher, an active relationship with the community, an active relationship with the needy. I mean, those of you who know the, the, the history of the Sufis in the subcontinent, you, especially you would like going up and down the restaurants on Devon Avenue because many of the Sufi schools back home will have their, their food, their staple food that they give as donations, you know, as charity to the needy, right? Like Nihadi. Oh, the Sabri Chisti school? We have Sabri Nahari, the Gharib Nawaz, right? These are all connected to these, these back home movements. And so, so the point is, is that the Salafis would be airing, would be more in the side of people that you would have in a library, whereas the Sufis would be people more likely in the street. And historically, the Sufis were the social activists. It isn't until the colonial period that that kind of got knocked away. And now the focus is only on getting closer to God, getting closer to God, getting closer to God, so on and so on. And so what then I'm suggesting is that what we're trying to do is bring the Quran back to the center of that. As a process of rebuilding all of this. Okay, does it make sense so far, or did I, have I, uh, does it seem like it, it somewhat makes sense? Okay, back to the discussion on Furqan. How does the innate sense of right and wrong develop via Quran relate to God inspiring your soul to knowledge of right and wrong? Very good question. We would say that innately, by way of fitrah, you would have some degree of Furqan. Furqan would be the ultimate, some degree of an innate sense of right and wrong. But as you are growing up in society, society is then going to influence it in particular ways. Maybe not in the big issues, maybe in the small issues, but it will influence that. So one of the purposes of, of Revelation is to redirect us back. Let me know if that makes sense. Okay. <clears throat> Any questions? Any other questions? Because next time we have to look at the other half of this ayah, which gets things more exciting, the idea of kufr and such. No question? Okay, so what is the fundamental point again of today's discussion? That the consequence of the Quran should be that there are certain almost like radars that are being activated within your system. One is a compulsion to action. Another is an innate sense of right and wrong. Another is an understanding of how the world operates. Now, can you get this by embodying the sunnah Yes. More of the sunnah you embody, I do believe this happens. The hard part there is that because the sunnah is an open book, it's not a book, uh, often we will have selective portions of the sunnah. The goal is to have it as wide as possible, our embracing of the prophet, peace be upon him. So was it in this class yesterday that we spoke about uh, about uh, tahiyat, or was it in the other class? Anybody remember? Okay, All right. So one experiment to do, and experiment is probably the wrong word. When you're in your prayers, 
and you're focusing, trying to focus. So yesterday we did the exercise on yearning, right? To help develop focus in prayers and to help develop sincerity in du'as. And that's something that I would encourage to, to, to keep doing. And sometimes with the help of a guide, because that can also reopen a whole bunch of traumas. So that I have to be caught, uh, I'm also uh, encouraging some caution about. But what are you reciting in, in the, in, when you're sitting in Jalsa, when you're sitting, you're reciting Atahiyat, right? What is that? That paragraph that we're reciting, what are we repeating? Easy question. Greetings uh, uh, upon the Prophet and uh, peace and blessing and salawats. Okay, uh, give me the translation. But sorry. where, what transcript is that uh, a recording of? It's when, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. It's when Huzur Sallallahu Alaihi um was ascended to heavens. That's mm -hmm. when it's the conversation between Allah, angels, and the Prophet of God. Okay, exactly. So the so the text is blessings on the prophet, greeting with Allah Taala. Yes, uh, with the your, it's the transcript is the conversation between the prophet and Allah. Okay. Now, as a focusing exercise, but as part of your prayer exercise, when you are reciting that portion, put yourself in that situation. lillahi right. This is a greeting at the hiyat, right? Allah and blessings of the Prophet and, and, and goodness. Salamu alayka ayyuhan nabiyu. Peace be upon you, O Prophet. So on and so on. Good. And then likewise, what do we recite after that? I mean, the last part is, you know, Ashhadu la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammad rasulullah. Okay, and then what do we recite after the, after the tashahud? Durud. Ibrahim. Yeah, exactly. So now, when you're reciting that, and perhaps many of you already do this, recite it as a prayer on the family of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Meaning, keep that in your consciousness. And so what I'm suggesting is these are our, our points of embodying the sunnah in our acts of worship. Can I make a point really quickly, if that's okay? Fire away, Hazel. And I appreciate the, the conversation around having the Quran be the first focal point of study. Um, I'll never forget when I was trying to pick a madhab when I first converted. Oh, and I think we're uh, translating madhab for everybody. Um, school of thought, one of the four legal schools of thought. And so I, I chose Hanafi, but when I was learning Shafi, the, uh, Shafi law, I would keep moving my finger up and down because of the narration that your finger moves, you're hitting shaitan with a pole. <laughs> and I remember thinking just how distracting it was to not be focusing on Allah during that prayer. And I kept focusing on like beating up shaitan during my prayer. And, and you so, know, uh, so knowing Hazel, I can also picture her taking some pleasure in beating up shaitan. But anyway, continue, please. <laughs> no, so I, I just, um, I love the... I love the reflection for us to focus on, on that conversation between the Prophet and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to just try to embody that and, and the importance of turning to the Quran instead of fiqh, like where I was in my early journey um, and focusing on beating up shaitan <laughs> during prayer and not focusing on my relationship with God in that moment. Thank you for sharing. Okay. And, and we're going to, uh, if we get to it, we're going to make that conversation even a little bit more interesting uh, a few steps down the road. Ahant, question. Uh, yeah, you know, earlier you had, you know, you, know, you know, mentioned that, you know, when reading the Quran, we should keep in our like consciousness us also interacting uh, with the Prophet Um how do I like mentally make that connection? Uh, if you could like, elaborate, and what yeah. are some sort of mental, you know, you know, cues that you know I should have, especially when reading a translation, on to doing that, you know, just for the the sake of better, you know, inner reflection. Yeah, a uh, really, really deep question, Marshall. Let me see if I can address this satisfactorily uh, in terms of the remaining time. So, on the one hand, we have different types of tafsir, different types of commentary. That was one of the worst 
three lines, the history of three lines. Let me, whoops. Some of these not doesn't feel that much better, but sorry guys. All right, so, and then we have uh, audience. So these are two different uh, categories that people often confuse with each other. And, and so what are the big categories of tafsir? First one is what we call specific, pas. Next one is what we call um, general, not like mangoes. And then personal. So specific tafsirs are those that are specifically placed in the Quran in the generation of the Prophet, peace be upon him. So you'll hear some terms like asbab al-nuzul, the occasion of revelation. And these are commentaries that are trying to gather whatever we can of the backstory of each ayah. And you'd be surprised by how little information we actually have of the backstory of each ayah. We'd like to think that we have, you know, chapters and chapters for each ayah. No, we have little tiny amounts. And just because it wasn't important to the people at the time. And so, so one answer to your question would be to look at those specific commentaries. There's one that is translated into English by Al-Wahidi and that you should find in PDF pretty easily. Uh, but I mean, as a, as, a, as a resource. And then general would be pretty much almost all the other commentaries that are trying to universalize the text. So some will look at the commentary, some will look at the Quran through the lens of grammar. Some will look at the, uh, the commentary through the lens of law. Some will look at it through the lens of purification of the self. Maududi's uh, 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 innovation is that he looked at it as a political text, so forth and so on. So you're looking at it through a lens, universalizing the, the text for all time and place. And so, so the point is, if one way I'm trying to get a sense of the generation of the prophet would be to look through speci uh, the specific lens. And you know, Jewel, exactly. It's it's kind of surprising how how small it is. Then, what are your? Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, what are your like thoughts on uh, Imam Maloud's didactic, you know, poem? He, you know, it's it's sort of like a like Ghazali text where he. He uses, for example, for uh, the impurity of anger. He he does, you know, you know, you know, reference some Quranic verses as healing, like for that. Mm -hmm. uh, could we like also like you know look at those kind of texts where you know we have a certain goal in mind yeah. to self you know purify and then directly go, you know go to those ayahs or like would we be missing the bigger you know you know picture you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, like of the Quran, uh, if we take specific approaches, you know, like so, that. So my general rule of thumb is uh, feel free to read anything and everything uh, with those intentions. But the better you can, the better situation is you, you have someone at least instructing you on your curriculum. And preferably better than that is someone instructing you on the text itself. But in terms of our era, that might be hard. You know, so it's one thing to read Rumi on your own. It's another thing to read Rumi sentence by sentence with, with uh, a guide. It will be a fundamentally different experience. And even think about uh, our, our, our class so far. We've made it through 10 ayahs in over a week. I mean, think about how slow that is. And so, so the point is that uh, if you are reading on your own, then the challenge is that your nafs is actually dictating your growth and giving the illusion of growth. If you're reading with someone who is teaching you, it's one thing if they're a tutor of the text, it's another thing if they're teaching you as the person and assuming you're listening, then they're also going to be putting you in your place too, you know, when you need to hear it. See what I'm saying? So, so do you think, a, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so do you think sort of going away from that, you know, reading texts or, or reading the Quran or taking the spiritual path, you know, other than like with the teacher is the source of a lot of problems uh, today. I mean, isn't that the, I mean, the uh, the essence of the Sufi tradition? 
I mean, you know, you know, like just like how the Sahaba had the Prophet Sallallahu we we have you know you know teachers as well like the uh, like living chain right so so one thing i would say about the living chain is uh that gets uh, overplayed quite a bit as a doctrine of legitimacy it is definitely a real thing right uh but if you look at just about every single sufi school most of them were formed in the 1200s or the 1500s and so the living chain issue is more of a trust in the people who are telling you that there's a there's a living chain. You know what I'm and so, so uh, the Sufis uh, or any other uh, a group that we're talking about, when you have a teacher-student relationship, a master-student relationship, master-apprentice relationship, more learning is going to happen. Uh, when there can also be some cross-fertilization to make sure that everyone is kept in line, that's even better. Because, I mean, if there's anyone who can tell you about the misconduct of preachers, it's me, right? You know, uh, and the vast majority of those uh, uh, people of misconduct are Sufis. And so, so the point is that uh, all of these have their strengths. They also have their, their limitations. But let me give you the second half of the screen, back to your question about, about engaging with the Prophet and the Quran, peace be upon him. Um, who is the primary audience of the Quran? Anyway. The primary audience of the Quran is the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. Allah is speaking to him. And then what we're saying, the audience of the prophet is the Sahaba. And then the audience of the Sahaba are the people who came after them. And the audience of them are the people who came after them. Again, what am I doing? I'm putting it in the real world situation. And so the audience of the prophet is also, you know, the also it's also the coffers too. You know, he's calling upon them, but in terms of who's listening. And then you can say eventually it's us. And so back to your point, uh, back to your question, Ahant. One way to approach the Quran is that it's a conversation between Allah and the Prophet, peace be upon him. Now think about what that also does. Immediately, it makes sense why the Quran is in a particular dialect, right? And immediately it places the Quran in a particular moment in history, which then means for me to apply it to me, it becomes an act of interpretation. And that's why the Islamic sciences form. Make sense? So, yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, uh, I mean, like, not to take uh, sort of like too much time. It, yeah. It's just, um, you know, uh, it's hard to like, you know, like internalize and, you know, like, you know, uh, to get as much as you can, like out of the Quran. You know, sometimes I feel like I hit like a plateau in terms of like uh, the jewels I can get. And it seems, you know, maybe with like the teacher or, you know, like uh, the uh, the reviving my faith in another way is where I get more. But uh, you know, since we're so far from like you know you know revelation, in, in terms of like you know different like you know uh, the interpretations, it's it's hard to you know navigate all that. And I guess is you know, is all I'm saying. So uh, I would suggest what you're also describing uh, is the common struggle of a person who's still somewhat new in their conversion that everything you just said, I bet Hazel has probably felt things like that before. I think Jewel has probably felt things like that before. Um, who else is anybody else here? Convert, uh, Stephanie Alexander will be feeling like that uh, before Stephanie Mirza may, may have also felt these ways. And, and so the point I'm making is part of what you're describing is trying to figure out how to calibrate my speed, how to calibrate you know, my expectations and such, as opposed to, hey, today I'm a hunt and tomorrow, you know, I change my name to Mahmoud Abdul Ralph or something like that, right? 
And, and so, so what is the, the, the key theme of the whole class? It's small nuggets you know, and growth by way of small nuggets. As opposed to the natural desire of trying to hit a grand slam or score a touchdown in every single breath, which is not going to happen. Uh, Malahat, is your question super important? Because I actually have to end class. Okay, we will stop right here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka wa natuwi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka wa natuwi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka wa natuwi ilayk. May Allah tell the Lord you all, inshallah. والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته